You're listening to Traceroute. I'm Amy Toby, And I'm Mather DeLeon, filling in for John Taylor, who's got a bit of a predicament. You see, when he's not producing for Traceroute, John moonlights as a bit of a rock star. And for the past 35 years, John and his brother Steve have collaborated with a number of very talented musicians who've not only helped shape the sound and trajectory of their band, The Uninvited, but have become what John calls a second family. And the newest member of that family is a young up-and-comer from San Diego. Hello, my name is Armand Cedric Billamoria. Armand is an Emmy-nominated sound editor, mixer, Foley artist, and composer, who also happens to be an outstanding musician. Back in 2016, Armand relocated to San Francisco to pursue a degree in cinema emphasis sound design. And a little over a year ago, was scrolling through Facebook. And I saw this post from this big, goofy dude named JT. And um, he's like, hey, looking for a, you know, a keyboardist. And immediately was like, wow, I love the music. I love the sound. I love the vibe. I love the energy. And I shot my shot, so to speak, and immediately got a message back. Hey, thanks for reaching out. Um, can you make Tuesday's rehearsal? And I was like, sure, absolutely. And uh, apparently nailed the audition on the fly. And the rest is history, so to speak. Except that part is history. After seven years in the city, Armand is at a crossroads. And unfortunately... There isn't really much of a a film industry scene in the Bay Area. And so, you know, I had to make the tough decision, you know, yes, music is always going to be the dream. I'm still going to pursue that, but I also need to make money. i got to survive. I'm going to hand the baton to John here and and ask you, and this this might be an uncomfortable question, so uh, (laughs) this happens all the time. Right. I mean, historically, someone moves away, you find a new keyboard player, you find someone to replace them, right? With all the talent uh, in and around the city, why, why not just find a new keyboard player? That's a fantastic question. Um, and one would think that that is absolutely the logic. But for us, vibe is like the single most important thing. You know, the band is my is my outlet of joy. This is what I do to make up for um, the dystopian hellscape <laughs> that is the rest of my life, right? I just, I, you know, playing with the band is the ultimate source of joy. So when you have, um, you know, it's a family. You know, the right band is a family. And everybody is, you know, on the same page and, you know, is bringing happiness and love and this incredible vibe that's just super critical. And it's not easy. It is not easy to find that family, to make that vibe. Super just not easy. So with Armand back in Southern California, John's predicament isn't that he can't find another keyboard player. It's that Armand and the band are a family, and they don't want to give up the experience of jamming together in real time, nor do they simply want to default to what we'll call asynchronous collaboration. What they do want is to keep the vibe alive. Amy, if you recall our first recording session together, when Grace asked you uh, what you were most looking forward to from the future of tech, you said, that someday you'd love to sing a duet with someone over a Zoom call, right? And if we're able to address the latency that occurs between two people communicating at a great distance, not only would we be able to sing in time, but we might also hear the nuances of each other's performance. 
and then we'd really know what it means to be remotely in sync. So in trying to help John with his situation, uh, the big question that I think we're here to try and answer is like, is this possible? Like, will we ever get to a point when network latency is so low that John and Armand can maintain the same vibe online that they've grown accustomed to when performing together offline? Well, I have a thing I'm going to send you in Slack real quick yep. to take a look at. And so there's this thing that's been going around for a little over a decade. Basically, it's a list of how long different things in a computer take. Because often, most people don't think about how long it takes the different parts of a computer to do things. And so it starts at the top, an L1 cache reference, which means on the CPU, only a little tiny bit of that is the actual processor. And then a bunch of it is actually memory that's right on the same silicon. And so that takes half a nanosecond to go and get some data and bring it back to the core. And then as you go down this, right, we get out of nanoseconds and we get into microseconds, stuff like transfer one kilobyte over a one gigabit network. And then we get to SSDs where we can read 4K randomly, 150 microseconds. But if you look at the next one for like hard drives, all of the times in the first 16 lines are below what is considered the human ability to perceive. Okay, so this doc that we're referencing, Latency Numbers Every Programmer Should Know by Jeff Dean, based on a post by Peter Norvig, is actually from 2019 and might be a little out of date. But suffice to say, there are a lot of processes in computing that add latency, and we'll get more into those later. But there's one in particular that jumps out here, and that's line 16, which is the time it takes a packet to make the trip from California to the Netherlands and back, 150 milliseconds. And while that doesn't fall quite below the threshold of what most people perceive as obvious latency, which is actually between 100 and 120 milliseconds, it does fall well below the threshold at which networked communication starts to break down, around 250 to 300 milliseconds. And that is where it gets interesting. Because why is there such a discrepancy between what we perceive and what we can tolerate when communicating online? In a way, this feels to me like we're adapting to the shortcomings of our digital environment. And that's how Zoom does its trick, right? Is it kind of dials in the latency and tries to match people up, but keep it under that human perception yeah. threshold. Interesting. Okay, so it's almost like digital sleight of hand, like a clever element of its design that seems reliant on our kind of natural tendency to compensate for sensory input that doesn't line up, right? Which makes a ton of sense. Like when you think about how we actually perceive the world around us, because the real world isn't a zero latency environment. Okay, let me give you an example. Imagine you're at a comedy club and maybe you're 10 feet from the stage. The time it takes a joke to travel that distance is around eight or nine milliseconds, which is generally thought to be below that human ability to perceive. But then the joke enters your ear and causes your eardrums to vibrate. Those vibrations are transmitted through the middle ear to the inner ear, which converts them into electrical signals. And then those signals travel along the auditory nerve to the brain, where it interprets the joke as specific sounds, locates its origin, integrates it with other sensory input, and... And that whole process can take up to a few hundred milliseconds. But because our brains are so good at compensating for these naturally occurring latencies, the experience feels instantaneous. So when we talk about things like 
communicating over the speed of light, most people think speed of light is instantaneous because it's so fast. Like, how long could it take to go from Michigan to California? Well, it turns out the answer to that is about 65 milliseconds at the speed of light in glass. Okay, so there it is, the wrinkle. Light makes its way through space at an astonishing 300,000 kilometers per second. That's rounded up. The theoretical speed limit of the universe. However, that's not how light moves through the internet. Think of it this way. Let's say you're at your desk, and with a pencil and the steadiest hand imaginable, you draw a straight line from one end of a piece of paper to the other. That's speed of light in a vacuum straight as can be, just hurtling through space at top speed. Okay, now say you're on a train, and you try to draw that same line on that same piece of paper, and yeah, you've got a steady hand, but it's nowhere near as stable as when you were doing this at home. Uh, But when you're done, it looks pretty good, right? Like, these are two relatively straight lines. But if you were to zoom in, you'd see hundreds, if not thousands, of tiny little zigzags where your pencil was vibrating from side to side along to the rhythm of the train. That's the speed of light in glass, bouncing back and forth, back and forth, all the way down the cable, slowed by the material's refractive index. So, while your data is technically being carried along at the speed of light, it's continuously being reflected within the material's core, meaning its true path is in fact longer than the straight line from end to end. And that is just one of several issues that technologists face when developing low latency networks. If we want to recreate the experience of jamming in real time so that John and Armand can continue their working relationship with the same vibe they're accustomed to, then the issue of this tech starts to sound a bit more like an issue of physics. That's where we hit the wall, I think. Because I have to explain this to people all the time, is they'll be like, well, can't we make it faster? And it's like, we are already running up against the limits of physics. And so unless yeah. you want to go and prove Einstein wrong, that's pretty much as fast as we can go. Right. This is why you don't see choirs on Zoom or bands on Zoom, mm-hmm. where the guitar player is in California and the singer is in New York and the bass player is in Brazil. Well, the reason why is because it doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work yet. As Amy said, we're already butting up against the wall of physics. I mean, I ran a trace route between John and the Bay Area and Armand and San Diego, and the round-trip latency between them can get up over 80 milliseconds. And that's like eight times the threshold of human perception. So clearly, there's no way they're going to jam in that environment. But what if we could build a tool that allows for that kind of remote musical collaboration? Like, what would it look like? What are the core elements we first need to consider? Well, since we've already established that speed is going to be essential, let's take a closer look at the latency issue. There's many causes for latency. That's Elias Bergstrom. I'm uh, currently a developer at Elk. Elk is a Linux-based operating system developed specifically for real-time audio. And allegedly, a device running Elk Audio OS... Has uh, less than a millisecond round-trip latency. That is low. As the senior software engineer for Elk Audio, Elias knows pretty much all there is to know about the causes of latency. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We have the latency of the network itself... That connection also has jitter, so how much the latency varies over time. There's internet relay servers. My voice now doesn't reach you directly over a single wire. It jumps from point to point. 
if we hang up and call each other again, it might actually follow a different route. There's the analog to digital conversion, which takes time. Then also, you don't immediately play back every single morsel of sound you receive. You have to buffer it. And that adds latency. The more jitter you have, the bigger the buffer is. There is time also just encoding and decoding the audio from a compressed signal to a, a raw sound. And on top of all that, there's the software. To write low latency software, you have to use a programming language that's close to the metal. For example, C++, that's what we use. You explicitly allocate, deallocate all the resources of the computer, work with the timings of what happens, and you don't let some library or framework do it for you. You know, in a normal computer program, there's many little moments where the computer waits ever so slightly for microseconds. Sometimes one is ready after the other, they need to wait for each other, you need to pause. All of these little pauses and all of these little waits add up and result in unusable latency unless you're very careful about what you're doing so that none of them should really ever be waiting for any other one or pausing for any reason if you want to have the lowest latency. And uh, that's what we developers at Elk do, making sure that doesn't happen. I find Elias to be such an interesting figure in this story because aside from his work as a developer and an academic who has published dozens of papers, Elias is at heart a performer himself. And in our conversation, he expressed the kind of longing for more people in our increasingly remote society to have access to just the sort of experience that John and his band so desperately cling to. There's more people playing music today than ever. You know, there's, there's a guitar in every other home. There's synthesizers that you can buy for like $100 or you just get a laptop and you run some software and you learn to make music. That's fantastic. But on the flip side, I'm not sure that all of these people that do play music play with others. And uh, I, I would say people are missing out because it's a wonderful thing. And that brings us to the second thing this tool we're looking for really needs, accessibility. If John and Armand are going to be able to get together and jam out on a regular basis, then this thing not only has to be lightning fast, but it really ought to be almost plug and play. And Elias is far from the only person working on this problem. Alexander Caro is my full name. Alex is a professor of media computer science at Anhalt University of Applied Sciences in Germany. I prefer working with audiovisual signals, including the transmission of audiovisual signals, and in particular, network music performances. Network music performance, or distributed music as Alex refers to it, is an idea that he spent the better part of his career as both a musician and an academic working to solve. And interestingly, he seems to think that we're not quite there yet. This distributed music thing is not necessarily a plug-and-play and internationally adopted principle. You also have to know what you're doing. It is pretty difficult to um, develop a system that is plug-and-play. And this is what most artists typically don't like, to fight with technology and figure out stuff that goes beyond their artistic expression. And Alex would know because, like I said, he's been developing this tech for most of his adult career. Actually, you being in California is a nice coincidence because 22 years ago I was at Stanford University at Karma where I discovered the precursor of the JackTrip software. And that is the basis of all I do, which is currently known as the SoundJack project. So much like the platform Elias is working on, 
Alex's Soundjack project is a software application designed for high-quality, low-latency audio streaming over the internet. It was developed specifically to help overcome geographical constraints between musicians seeking to perform in real-time over a network. And its inspiration, JackTrip, is widely regarded as the predecessor of most modern remote music collaboration systems. So, in our quest for the perfect tool, we still need to iron out this matter of accessibility. If Alex is right, and the technology doesn't inherently lend itself to a plug-and-play mindset, it might considerably raise the barrier of entry for the average user. Speaking of average users. When the pandemic hit, like so many people, I'm a musician, I'm a music teacher, and we were like, uh, what are we going to do? That's Russ Gavin, director of bands at Stanford University in California. When he's not teaching classes... I also get to interact with the Stanford Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics. Also known as Karma, which, as Alex mentioned, is where Jack Tripp got its start. And through Russ's connection to Karma... I knew Jack Tripp as a thing. I had seen enough of its coolness, and I was like, oh, I need to do this. And then it was very quickly made aware to me that uh, it was a command line tool. Okay, so this is where I'm starting to think that maybe Alex is right, because I just pulled up uh, a document called Installing and Running Jack Trip Command Line 1.3.0 on Windows 10. It's dated May 21st, 2021, and was posted by Cynthia Payne, who appears to have been involved with Jack Trip as a volunteer, SaaS instructor and consultant, and a live stream and recording engineer since 2020. Let me tell you, as helpful as I'm sure this document is, it's 1,400 plus words of detailed step-by-step operating procedure for JackTrip are more than enough to make me say hard pass. And unfortunately, Russ had a similar sentiment. And somebody was like, can you open the terminal on your MacBook? And I was like, well, no, I cannot. What are you talking about? Wow. <laughs> uh, I, I am but a simple uh, musician out here trying to, you know, survive when I can't be in the room with other musicians. What are we doing here? So Russ is stuck trying to figure out how to get Jack Tripp to work on his machine. But little does he know that only a mile away in Palo Alto, California, longtime software engineer and entrepreneur Mike Dickey is already on the case. Now, Mike is exactly the kind of person you want on a job like this. Uh, this is a guy who, back in the 1980s, taught himself to code using Rainbow Magazine and his dad's TRS-80 color computer. Let the Radio Shack TRS-80 put the world of color computing into your home. And there's more. The programmable, expandable TRS-80 color computer from $399 only at Radio Shack, the biggest name in little computers. And so if you've never seen one of these old computing magazines, I want you right now to head over to archive.org, search Rainbow Magazine, December 1982. Should be the first result. I want you to open her up, turn to page 98, and check out an article titled Go Adventuring with Gaypad by Jeff Wells. Now, GatePad stands for General All-Purpose Adventure Driver, and it looks to be a framework of around 6,000 lines of code intended to simplify the process of making your very own text-based adventure game. Back then, programs like GatePad were commonly published as a kind of tutorial for using machines like the TRS-80. In fact, utilizing Rainbow's wealth of articles, you might even be inspired to modify these codes yourself, expand on them, maybe share your creations with other color computer enthusiasts within your community. 
Not only would readers have been learning essential programming concepts and design principles, but the hands-on approach and DIY culture of early personal computing may likely have been the foundation upon which an entire generation of software engineers like Mike built their careers. Now, flash forward to May of 2020. Mike's son is singing in a boys' choir. And of course, at that time, the unfortunate truth of the matter was that, hey, if you like singing in choir, you're not going to do it for a long time. Exactly. Nobody's trying to meet up for a rousing chorus of Miserere May in the midst of a global pandemic. But of course, Mike's not having any of it. So he's like, wait, are we sure? Can't we use modern technology to solve this issue? And he went through all of the available protocols, all the technology that was out there with no allegiance to anything except getting his son's choir to be able to sing together. And that's how Mike discovered Jack Tripp. He got to know Chris. Chris Chafe, who is like the father of all this stuff. That's Alex again, who, as it turns out, cites the early work of Jack Tripp's inventors, Chris Schaaf and Juan Pablo Caceres, as the impetus for his motivation to develop SoundJack. Hey, Chris, whenever you hear this, uh, when people ask me what was the reason for working with network technologies, I always mention you were the first who created a working product rather than just spreading a rough idea. And Chris said, you know, you should talk to Mike. And so I showed up and I was like, I hear you're doing some cool stuff. I struggled with this command line aspect. And he gave me a couple of pieces of hardware. And I immediately went home and plugged it in and gave one to one of my friends across town. And I was like, let's check this out. And plug it in, start playing. And immediately, it was not the famous latency that blew my mind. It was the audio quality. I could hear the articulations of the saxophone on the other end. I could hear the overtones in the sound. There was a level of depth to the audio experience that was unlike anything I'd ever experienced in an online setting of any kind. Um, and yeah, the latency was great too, and we played duets for a half an hour. And it was like, whoa, we're living in Star Trek land. And uh, at that moment where I first experienced it, I knew that this technology existing was going to have a profound impact on my field, which is music and music education. And in June of 2020, that summer, he just started getting these hardware pieces out to members of the choir. Mm -hmm. And by late July, they were having 40-person rehearsals online in full real time. It's incredible. Uncompressed, lossless audio. You can tune. You can, like, yeah, it was, it was amazing. So at this point... Since rising demand for distributed music technology is inevitable, Chris, Mike, Russ, and a number of other colleagues decide to form Jack Trip Labs. The goal is to take that command line tool and that little piece of hardware and make them obsolete. To transform Jack Trip into a standalone virtual studio, accessible over a basic internet connection, the kind found in most homes. Now, I know what you're thinking. Super rad that Mike was able to get 40 kids online and relatively synced up for choir rehearsals during the pandemic. But these kids are likely all within a few miles of one another. And that proximity really matters. Because according to Russ... If you're on a fiber internet connection within, you know, a couple hundred miles of somebody, 
we're going to get you round trip connections in that five, six millisecond range. And so it really does hit that sweet spot where our brains are telling us that we are in person. And no doubt this technology is incredible, but John and Armand are at least 500 miles apart. And the further you push this proximity, the harder it gets for our brains to deal with the effect. Here's Alex again. Others think that it is the same thing as if in the same room. And this is just not true. It is getting close to true the closer you are physically. Uh, however, even then, it is a different thing. Um, it, it's In ideal case, it feels like a situation where you're in a sound studio and two separate rooms just connected via microphone cable. But it is really difficult adopting this principle on a worldwide plug-and-play manner. And this is, again, not the case. And even if we do that within Germany and Switzerland and so on, with a physical distance up to, let's say, 1,000 kilometers, it is not the same thing. So the band's future with Armand hangs in the balance. Unless we can get that round-trip latency down to within a reasonable figure kind of seems like they might have to settle for the asynchronous option after all. That or recruit a new member of the fam. But we have another stop to make. All the way out in Alpine country. My name is Janine Hacker. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Liechtenstein. As an assistant professor, Janine's research delves into how we use different technologies and what their impact is on society. She's particularly keen to study communications and collaboration technologies. And as luck would have it... I have been singing in various choirs since I was a child. And uh, during the pandemic, I also had some experiences with online rehearsals where basically everyone except for the conductor is muted. Which, again, is less than ideal. But like I said, Janine is a researcher. And this is her specialty. So, of course, she's going to be asking questions, trying to understand her situation a bit better. And in the middle of lockdown, what you really need is a touch of serendipity. During the pandemic, I virtually met Heike Henning, who is um, a professor in the field of choral and music pedagogy. And she was basically conducting her choirs in the Nuremberg region via Jamulus. Jamulus is yet another networked music performance software. This one written by Volker Fischer and 99 other contributors, all credited on GitHub. What's interesting about Professor Henning's situation is that while her choirs were back in Nuremberg, Germany, she herself had taken up a professorship at the Mozarteum in Salzburg, Austria, nearly 200 miles away. I thought, well, that's actually really interesting. Why not try to initiate a project on this? So Janine, together with her new colleague, Professor Henning, set out to identify and evaluate technology solutions that contribute to state-of-the-art online choir rehearsals. And then, yeah, somehow <laughs> we got connected to Alex. Yep, same Alex. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and we're super lucky to actually have this connection, uh, him being the developer of one of the most renowned softwares in this field. And very quickly <laughs> wrote the proposal for this project. And um, it was one week or something, right? Uh, yeah, or one weekend, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> More or less. And thus, the Choir at Home project was born. Well, uh, and Choir at Home is also the like the short name. <laughs> yeah, but its full name is How to Carry Out Virtual Choir Rehearsals with the Help of Digital Tools, which is great, but I think we'll just stick with Choir at Home. 
So with Alex on board, they switched from Jamulus to Soundjack, secured funding from Erasmus+, Plus, which is one of the European Union's most significant student exchange initiatives, and set about developing an experiment they called the Online Lab Choir. The general objective now of this project is to enable choirs to carry out online rehearsals. Um, when I went into this project, I thought, okay, when we use this software, it is really close to singing together in one room. And I have to say, it is not. Uh, it is still quite different. Um, and in, in our project, we already um, use some hardware that makes it more or less plug and play. <laughs> but as we also found out uh, in the last couple of weeks, it is still <laughs> not really plug and play. <laughs> and I think Alex, yeah, Alex is nodding. So, um, yeah, let's say the human factor is quite big in this, right? <laughs> this, again, hints at the need for accessibility, right? What she's getting at here is while two-thirds of the lab's 35 participants had at least 20 years' experience singing in choirs, many of them were of an age demographic that historically does not have a great track record of adapting quickly to new technologies, i.e. the human element. Which makes it all the more interesting that so many applied to be part of the lab. And Janine wanted to know what their motivations were for participating. And many of them, they were just curious. They wanted to see, does it work? Some of them are also have some, let's say, key roles in their own choirs. So they wanted to see what's possible, maybe in terms of organizing also hybrid rehearsals in the future, or maybe um, engaging in collaborations with choirs in other countries. But perhaps most interesting is the idea that, according to Janine, participation in amateur choirs is, for many people, not really about the singing itself. Yeah, they care a lot about this real connection to people, like real in terms of physical presence. Um, if you ask the typical chorister in, in amateur choirs, maybe 90% of the experience is actually going there for social reasons and not, not really for singing. And this hits on the real crux of what's missing from so many remote collaboration platforms. Some of them had participated in Zoom rehearsals during the pandemic, which are not, well, yeah, sure. right? <laughs> what you typically have there is, you know, people having their cameras off and you're just... Mm -hmm speaking to whoever you don't really know who's there <laughs> you just have those black tiles um, mm -hmm. and it can be quite frustrating with no feedback no feedback well and we're tunnel visioned into the fourth wall mm -hmm. yeah. right and so we don't have peripheral vision to our peers we don't have mm. smell oh interesting point so we cut off three out of five senses mm -hmm. right Probably only four are relevant to singing, but know, taste <laughs> might have an element that we just don't know about. Yeah, and I, and I could totally imagine the scene that Janine is describing. Like like she said, little black squares, you know, cameras on, cameras off, awkward silences, people talking over one another, terrible Wi-Fi connections, muffled audio. I mean, just imagine trying to lead a choir like that. Picture trying to sing in a choir like that. I mean, typically... In these kinds of situations, you need to listen very closely to the other voices in your group. <laughs> That's not exactly happening in this online environment. Actually, to be a choir that is together, you have to unlearn listening to the others to some extent. So, there it is. Our trifecta. Speed, accessibility, and feedback. And strangely, that last one feels the most out of reach. At least for now. 
But in the interest of due diligence, I reached out to someone with a very unique perspective on the whole idea. Hi, I'm Pamela Pavlishak. I am a tech emotionographer. That means I study how technology and emotion affect our world. I run a research studio called Subjective to explore these big questions with the biggest technology companies of today. She's also a professor at Pratt, and she has a lot to say about the way we experience feedback in the real world. I wonder if, like, these kinds of things impact the way that we feel like in sync or, 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 you know, that we're collaborating or communicating with people is not having any control over the environment itself. Yeah, I think there is something to that. I think, you know, we put so much emphasis on nonverbal communication, but we forget that a lot of how we pick up mood is contextual. It's what's going on (laughs) around us, right? So, um, I think of how many times like a pet cat wanders onto screen on Zoom and everyone's like, oh, finally, something good's happening here in this meeting, you know, and it just changes the mood of the room. And that's something that just has to do with the environment itself and those cues that are Mm -hmm. that are in it. So I think technology can't imitate that rich sensory experience yet that we have in person, all the smells, the little movements, the lighting, as you say, but it could. Are you talking about like metaverse type stuff? Like, is this, where are we going? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that a lot of it's so theoretical because where this technology is at now, Mm -hmm. it doesn't give that that mood at all, (laughs) does it? (laughs) Because you're kind of like isolated, you're wearing a headset, you're feeling cut off from everyone around you. And then you're in this immersive world that feels not very rich, not very realistic, not very satisfying. That may change. I think there might be other ways to enhance the sensory cues that we get that give us that vibe, maybe through wearables connected to home devices, for instance. Okay, so this is the stone I really want to take a peek under because I love the idea of wearables and the role they might play in enhancing our connection to others in online spaces. So one more trip around the world to a little shop in the Shengwan district of Hong Kong. My name is Florian Zimmendinger. I'm a wearable nerd because it's my life to to make wearables, you know. Florian is the founder of a company called Soundbrenner, and it's their mission to make music practice addictive. And their flagship product is a smartwatch with a twist. As a musician, it's pure torture to sit there for an hour with this annoying click in your head. So what if you could simply feel it and replace the annoying sound with a vibration? That was kind of the starting premise of the company. When it comes to music, it is a full body experience. That's when it's most enjoyable, right? So it's never going to feel the same to sit at home and listening with your headphones than when you're live in a place and you know, you can feel the bass through your whole body, right? So I think the human brain is wired to, to enjoy it for some reason, to activate all the senses at once. <laughs> the self-proclaimed wearable nerd makes a wearable metronome. Go figure. Now, while wearables are not the sole focus of his work and Soundbrenner isn't explicitly a haptics company, Florian has to admit there's just something cool about haptics. When the Apple Watch initially launched, they listed the headline features, and one of them was actually haptic feedback. Yeah, I actually remember this. 
It was the 2014 Apple keynote, and uh, it was the end of the day, so most of the audience thought the presentation was over. But just as Tim Cook is about to walk off stage, he hesitates. And like the great Lieutenant Columbo, in one of his finest gotcha moments, turns back to the crowd and says, just one more thing. And then he plays that sexy reveal video like they do for every new product to a standing ovation, of course. And sure enough, one of the key features is that the Apple Watch provides new intimate ways to connect and communicate directly from your wrist. And then the voice of Johnny Ive goes on to describe how you can uh, tap the watch to get someone's attention or draw a little picture, write a little note, even share your heartbeat. And most of these interactions are accompanied by haptic feedback. And what he's suggesting here is that while technology often inhibits the subtle ways that humans communicate with one another, features like these might one day redefine how we interact with one another through our devices. I remember being super into this. And then I saw the price tag. And because at the time, I was still very much under the umbrella of starving artist, I said, hard pass. But I tried the Soundburner Core, and I gotta say, I kind of dig it. I mean, I don't know that it would make practice, quote unquote, addictive for me. But if I could integrate feedback like that into some kind of virtual performance or a rehearsal online, and like if it could be a little more subtle, like not so much a metronome, but maybe just like a little push to let me know that there's someone on the other side. I think that would be so satisfying. And let's say we get there. We solve for speed with low latency software that's close to the metal, optimized for deployment over high bandwidth peer-to-peer networks. And we solve for accessibility with an open source, free to use interface that inches ever closer to a true plug and play standard with each new iteration. And let's say we solve for feedback by employing our personal and often wearable devices to deliver the kind of sensory input that we take for granted in our everyday world interactions. It seems like that might do it. Because according to all the technologists and teachers and researchers working on this stuff, we're right there on the edge. But is it enough? Like, will we ever truly capture the essence of that vibe that John and Amon and every musician alive are chasing after. I feel like they're wishing more than what's going to actually happen. I don't think it's ever really going to reach the experience of being in a room with a group of people singing together. Well, we'll find out if Amy's right on the next episode of Trace Route. Trace Route is a podcast from Equinix and Stories Bureau. This episode was hosted by Amy Toby and was produced by Mathar DeLeon with help from Sadie Scott. 
It was edited by Joshua Ramsey, with mixing, sound design, and original composition by Brett Vanderlaan, and additional mixing by Jeremy Tuttle. Our fact checker is Anna Alvarado. Our staff includes Tim Ballant, Susie Falk, Lisa Harris, Elisa Manjadas, Steven Staver, Alexandra Uresta, and Rebecca Woodward. Our theme song was composed by Ty Gibbons. You can check us out on X at Equinix Metal and on YouTube at Equinix Developers. Visit traceroutpodcast.com for even more stories about the human layer of the stack. We'll leave all these links and a link to the transcript down in the show notes. Special thanks to our producer, John Taylor, and The Uninvited for the use of their music in this episode. And a very special thanks to all the voices who helped contribute to this story. If you liked it, it'd be awesome if you could share this wherever you hang out online. Maybe drop us a rating on Spotify, a rating and review on Apple. I mean, this is just how other people find the show, so any little bit helps. I'm Mather DeLeon, senior producer for Traceroute, and we'll be back in two weeks with the conclusion of this story. Until then, thanks for listening. 